Welcome to Latinos Who Thrive. I'm your host, Victor Escalante. What a great show we have for you today. This week, I'm excited to share with you a remarkable interview that I recently attended. The event was hosted by Miguel Lopez, the president of the Montgomery County Hispanic Chamber, and it took place in a meeting room in the Woodlands area. The chamber has been spearheading some incredible Latino branded programs and networking events, which I highly recommend you explore. All the info will be in the show notes. During this engaging gathering, Miguel is interviewing Zach Galindo, a successful entrepreneur from Honduras. The atmosphere was electric with about 50 people in attendance, all gathered for the event called Café con Miguel. I had the pleasure to ask Zach a few questions that are found at the end of the program. Now let's dive right into this inspiring interview and hear what Zach Galindo has to share with us. His journey as a thriving entrepreneur is sure to captivate and motivate you. So without further ado, let's get started. Down here for so long, I have to be a hometown team <laughs> fan as well, you know, so Astros, Texans, the whole nine. So I've heard you share that uh, you used to go to the barbershop in Chicago. Sometimes you would, as a kid, would sit there for hours, right? Sometimes you would get passed over, but you were just sitting there. But what, what was it, what is it about a barbershop that drew you to want to do that when you yeah, so it's, 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 it's a lot of things. I feel like I'm really lucky to have discovered something that I was really passionate about at a, at a young age. So growing up in Chicago, there's a barbershop pretty much on every corner, at least where I lived. And so that's just what you do. You don't go to the salon or you don't go to the sport clips. Like you would go to the barbershop and there was a barbershop there and it was the neighborhood shop that everybody went to. And I remember being, you know, 10 years old, I'd ride my bike uh, on a Saturday. Back then they didn't do appointments. So it was first come, first serve. And I remember countless times I'd be sitting there and they'd be like, hey, I, I got one more guy I need to get in real quick. It'll be like 10 minutes. And I'm a little kid, right? So what am I supposed to say? So I'd be like, okay, fine. An hour later, they're like, okay, we're ready for you. You know, and they would do that to me all the time, but I'm sure because I was just a little kid. But because I got to spend so much time there, I just loved the smells. I loved the conversations that were there. Most importantly, I love getting a haircut. To this day, I love getting a haircut. The feeling that you get with something so simple as just going shorter on your hair, right? Like it just gives you so much confidence. But even aside from that, it was the, the community building part of it. There were people that were coming in, not even getting a haircut, they were coming in just to hang out, just to talk, right? Just to watch sports, just to, it was, it was a social gathering. It was like a social club. And I remember being that young and I, I loved it. I was enamored by it. And so once I got older, I eventually started messing my own hair up, trying to copy what barbers would do in, in the barbershop. Eventually, I got some of my friends to be my guinea pigs. And, uh, you know, at the time, I thought I was doing something really good. But I look back at some of the pictures of, of their haircuts and oh, they were, they were terrible. Uh, but, you know, you got to start somewhere. Uh, eventually graduated they, high school. Are they still your friends? They are. I have, I have, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, well, bless them, really. Um, yeah, there's some guys, I mean, I used to cut their hair in, in my kitchen that are still coming by and, and getting haircuts today. Now I'm cutting their kids' hair, right? Which is awesome, like you get to be a, a part of that. But um, yeah, it was something that from a young age, I knew that I, I, I really loved and um, I pursued it and my family was always really supportive of me. Um, you know, they don't, I didn't necessarily need to be a doctor or a lawyer. They said, hey, if there's something that you, you're passionate about, go for it. So Chicago to Texas. Yeah, I had a, uh, one of my sisters had moved down here. She had gone to college at Navarro College and had always wanted to live here, you know, once she got married, uh, which she did. My brother-in-law at the time was in real estate. And at the time, my, my mother was trying to buy a house in Chicago. And now, mind you, this was in 2004. The market was really different back then. So for a three-bedroom apartment that we had up in Chicago, we were able to get a house down here for pretty much the same price. I mean, pretty much doubled our square footage. So within a couple of months of, of coming down here, um, my brother-in-law was in real estate, so he kind of showed us around one time that we came in and visited. And when she saw the housing market, the prices, I mean, it was a no-brainer. So we were down here within two months and uh, been here, been in Texas since 2004. So at some point um, under the immigration status, or, you know, you were classified or labeled, you know, like mm -hmm. you can educate us. Yeah. The DACA status, Yeah. Right? Yeah, so I was born in Honduras. I was brought to the States when I was eight years old. Um, and it's one of those things where um, when you're young, you don't, you don't realize the implications of that, right? I mean, you come to a, a country, it's not on your own will. 
but you're kind of put in this situation to where there's certain things that you have to deal with at a certain time. For example, um, legal status, right? So we came uh, on a visa. Uh, really, my, my mother brought us here really just for us to have a, a better chance, a better life than really what we could have had in Honduras. If you guys are familiar with Honduras, I mean, third world country, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of poverty. Uh, there are, you can go to college and things like that, but ultimately, um, you, the opportunity and the potential that you have is just much larger um, here in the United States. And so uh, when she brought me here, uh, we came on a visa. We eventually just ended up overstaying our visa. And so prior to 9-11, there were certain things that you could do without legal status. Um, I believe we were still able to get a, a driver's license. To, um, we had gone on a uh, refugee status when we first came but it was only a temporary thing that eventually lapsed. The good thing about us being able to get on a refugee status when we had first come, is we moved in 96, and if you guys remember, that was around uh, Hurricane Mitch was a big um, uh, kind of thing that happened. So we were able to get refugee status because of that, uh, but it was only something that was supposed to be uh, just for a couple of years. And so what that did allow us is it did give me a social security number. Now, once that status lapsed, the social security number wasn't valid anymore, but it was still a social security number that I had. So I was still able to get, um, I was still able to get a job, um, at, you know, once I came to, to being able to get a job. Back, like I said, before 9-11, things were a little bit, um, they weren't so strict, so there was really not much checking on certain things. It wasn't until, I wanna say, 2010, 2011, where they started really cracking down on documentation. So there was a point in time where you were able to get a driver's license really without having to show much citizenship or legal status. But there was a certain point where they cut it off and they said, you, you now have to prove that you have some kind of legal status here. So some of the challenges that I faced is right about the time that I was going to college was when they had that requirement that you needed documentation and I didn't, I didn't have any, so I couldn't renew my driver's license. And so my last two years of college, I actually paid somebody to drive me to school because I was terrified that if I drove, I was gonna get pulled over and I was gonna get deported. Now, now it's crazy because I grew up in this country. I grew up speaking the language. I grew up going to school with all my friends. Um, I wanted to go to college because I felt like if I ever have to prove <laughs> why I'm worthy to be here in this country. I want to say I'm educated. I want to say I've, I've done something. And I remember those years, it was really stressful because anything, any little thing, I felt like I, I'm going to get deported. You know, and all the hard work that I put in, I got into a university. And so the thing with, uh, with being undocumented and going to college, you can still sign up for college. Even though I had been a resident of this area of Montgomery County, you have, there's no financial aid, or at least at the time that I was going, you can't get student loans, you can't get any type of help, so you're having to pay out of pocket. But on top of that, you have to pay uh, almost like if you're a um, international student. So you have to pay a higher tuition. And so I, I picked up two jobs, and I was working two jobs. The days that I wasn't working, I was, I was going to school. Because I felt like I have to, in a way, I have to prove my worth in this country, if, if I ever, you know, if it gets time for me to have citizenship or if it ever comes a time to where I am about to get deported, maybe this will be my saving grace and me saying, hey, but, but I'm, I'm educated, I've, I've done something for society, I'm a good citizen, right? And all the while, you know, and I, I would explain this to, to some of my friends that I grew up with and they would tell me like, well, well why can't you just get citizenship? And it's like, well, it's not that easy, <laughs> you know? Like, it, I, wish, I wish it could be that easy to where I could, I could just say, hey, I wanna be a citizen. Um, and, you know, all the different ways that you could get citizenship, I mean, I guess, of course, I, I could have gotten married, but I hadn't met Sophie yet, so that wasn't, that wasn't really an option. Um, all of, uh, none of my sisters really had um, any legal status, and even, you know, claiming sister to sister, brother to brother, uh, takes a long time. My mother didn't have citizenship, so that wasn't, uh, an option. And so um, really, you know, trying to navigate, trying to graduate college, trying to just be successful at something, but always being worried that any little thing could get me deported. That's um, kind of a scary feeling. Huh? 
It is, it is. And uh, it, you know, it almost gives you a complex because you're, you're kind of timid in doing things because it's like, well, I don't, I don't want to draw too much attention and I don't want people starting to ask questions because then they might ask, well, do you, are you a citizen? And then, well, what if you're not a citizen, then what are you? You must be a resident for sure. And then, and then you have to say, well, I'm not. And so it kind of gives you a complex in like not wanting to try to do things. Um, I look back and I had always wanted to, to open up a, a barbershop. I think that, like I mentioned, that was a passion of mine for, for a long time. But I was scared that if I did, like, what if something happens to me and I, I get deported? Or what if people find out that I'm not legal? Are they gonna turn me in? You know? And so I was scared. I was scared to make that jump because, because of that. And, and, and the crazy thing is that if you didn't know that about me, you saw me as somebody that spoke English. I probably speak English better than I speak Spanish at this point now. Like, I'm, I'm forgetting my Spanish. I, I think in English now instead of thinking in Spanish. And, you know, I, I, I had a job. I worked in a restaurant, um, which, you know, it, it's, it, it's it was it was Fleming's. Yeah, so that's where we met years. Ago. That's that's where I originally met you. Yeah. So you used to come in, you used to come in all the time, you know, you know, you know, Miguel, right. <laughs> and uh, so I, I actually started off as a busboy there and uh, ended up working there. Uh, and, and another thing, too, I, I didn't want to lose that job because it was like, well, I got the job. I don't know that I'll be able to get another job. So I got to do what I can to keep this job. And so I ended up staying there, eventually kind of transitioned to waiter, bartender, and then I was a, a, a manager towards the, towards the end. So I got, to, I got to see a lot of kind of what goes on the front end and the back end of a restaurant. And I'm, I'm really glad for that experience because it taught, it taught me a lot about people, um, working with people, customer service, uh, different personalities, uh, working under pressure. I mean, I think, I think everybody should have a little stint in a restaurant job at some point because it teaches you a lot that you don't really get that experience in, in school. Is it safe to say that maybe you um, gave birth to Uber with your friends giving you rides back and forth? You know, yeah, you know, and, 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 and I remember the, the, the friend that I told, he was going to school with me as well. And I told him, I said, hey, man, I got to ask you something. Like, and don't laugh, please. I was like, I, I need you to drive me to school. He was like, well, why? And I explained it to him. He was like, okay. I thought he was going to be like, don't worry, you don't have to pay me. But he was like, okay, well, just, just make sure you pay me and I got you, you know? So, but, but, at least, but at least he did because, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what would have happened had I taken the risk and I, I just didn't want to, I didn't even want to try it, you know? And, and luckily I had somebody that was willing and able to, to do that um, for me, so. So how were you able to finally get that status, um, citizenship, yeah. and, and at what point did you Yeah, so, so it, it's crazy how things work out. The last year of college was when they came out with the DREAM Act, uh, DACA. And so I always tell people, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm one of the generation that's part of the DREAMers. And they came out with a program that was really tailored to people that were in my position, that came to the States when they were young, wasn't of their own choice or their own will, that lived here, had to deal kind of with the with challenges and the consequences of, of being here. I think originally it had led, it was supposed to be a pathway to citizenship, um, but uh, as it stands now, it really just, it gives you legal presence here in, in the States, so you can work, um, you can live in the States, all that, but there's, there's still really no path to citizenship through just that program. But my last year of college, as I was, um, I was getting ready to start an internship with uh, the accounting firm with Ernst & Young, they required documentation. So they had, they had made me the offer, but I, before I started, I needed to show that I had documentation to actually work for them. And it literally came down to two days before I started. I, I, ha I had told them, I said, hey, I, I don't know if I'll be able to get documentation to start with you guys. And they were kind enough to be like, hey, look, you have till the day that you're supposed to start, right? Like, so let's just wait and see what happens. And I remember thinking like, I finally got an internship with a really good firm. In accounting, there's, um, they call them the, the big four. So any accountants here know. Um, Ernst & Young is definitely one of the, the biggest one, at least in Houston. So everybody that was going to school, they were aiming for internships like that. And I originally didn't even think I'd be able to get an internship of, of that sort because I had originally not gone to, uh, I didn't go to college to get an accounting degree. 
I went to college really to get a, a business degree because I eventually wanted to open up a, a shop. But as I was going through the, as I was going through college, they make you declare a major. And I had done well in some accounting classes, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do accounting. And throughout that, I had uh, a teacher that told me, hey, they do career fairs all the time. You should, you should see if, you know, what, what happens. If you can get an internship, get a little bit of corporate world experience. And so I had originally, it wasn't even to be an accountant. It was just, all right, well, let's try it out. Let's see. And I ended up getting an offer from Ernst & Young. And so I said, okay, this is a sign. Like, I've got I've to see where this takes me. But they had asked for the documentation. And so that last year, DACA came out. I filed all my paperwork. I was like one of the first people. Because when, when it came out, that was like, it was like a miracle. Like it was, it was honestly, I remember, like I almost wanted to cry that there was an opportunity like that. Because prior to that, I thought, well, I'm going to have to marry somebody. To, like, right, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to marry somebody. No, and, and Sophie wasn't, she, she wasn't around yet. She wasn't around yet, you know? And so I was like, I'm going to have to marry somebody. Like that maybe I don't want to marry, but like, that, I, like that's my only way. And then this came out. But at the beginning, it was, it, they were very, very selective. Um, and so I made, I did everything I could to file all my paperwork. Now, mind you, you know, I mean, it's, it wasn't cheap. You had to pay a, a lawyer to do it. And especially I didn't want to do it myself because I didn't want to check the wrong box and then I get denied. So, um, I got approved and I got my, um, they give you a card, you know, that, that says that, that you're good. I got that two days before I was supposed to start my internship. And if it wasn't for that, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what would have happened. You know, because I, I attribute a lot of uh, the things that we've been able to incorporate into our businesses now. I learned from all of my experience, from my restaurant experience, from my experience in the corporate world, uh, being a, an auditor. I got to see a lot of big business, what makes companies great at what they do. And then the flip side, I, we're, you know, we got to audit some companies that weren't very good. And I got to see not just the financials of it, but people, their culture. Things that you know, I take to this day, and I try to incorporate into into what we do because it's not just about the numbers; it's about the culture, it's about people, and things like that. And so, I, I don't know, I don't know where I would be had had that not happened, you know. Um, and so, DACA, you know, for whatever publicity, not not to get political or any of that, but um, you know, there, there's there's a bad rap that goes with it. But you know, had they not came out with that program, I don't know where I would be. You know, I don't know if I would I would even be here. And so I like sharing my story because I know there's a lot of people out there and maybe not everybody tells you about it. Like I said, you could see them walking around and you don't know their background. You don't know the stress that, you don't know if they're thinking, I might get deported, right? Like, and, and, and a lot of people may not even share that. They may not want people to think of them a, a certain way, but you know, I, I think my story has power in, in showing people that um, I'm one of them and if I can, you know, do okay for myself and, and, and help out the community and be able to serve, um, they can too, you know? You know, if you go back in time, and I, I know you don't want to um, politicize this and that's not the intent, but if I remember correctly, there was some ugly verbal stuff going back and forth. There, there was, and there was a point in time where I didn't even want to say that I was an immigrant right. because I'd be in a room where it's like, how, what are they going to think about me, right. you know, or somebody would, would ask me something and it's like, I, I don't know if I want to say my, what my opinion is, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it goes back to kind of, you get that complex of like, you don't want to draw too much attention. You don't want to be yourself in a way um, because, and, 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 and also um, not just from that, but also a lot of the kids that are on DACA, it's like you're, you're operating in, in, in a world where you're kind of in the middle. Like at times, maybe you're not Hispanic enough for some of, the, some of the other kids. And then at the same time, maybe you're too Hispanic for some other people. And so you're kind of in this middle ground where you feel like, well, well, but I am. And they look at you, well, yeah, but you grew up here or, you know, you speak the language. And, and so it, it, it's kind of this weird area that, that you're operating in. And so you, you do get kind of this complex of like, well, I don't, I, I just, I just want to seem normal. I don't want people to think anything, anything less of me. You're listening to Latinos Who Thrive with Miguel Lopez and Seca Lindo. We'll be right back. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Do you want to stand out from the crowd and make a lasting impression? Then look no further. 
Introducing the ultimate game changer, the Escalante Public Speaking Mastery Course. In today's competitive world, effective communication is the key to success. Whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out, the ability to speak confidently and persuasively is a game changer. I know, because I have lived through it. That's why the Public Speaking Mastery Course is here to unlock your full potential. The comprehensive course is designed to transform your public speaking skills from good to extraordinary. I will be guiding you through a step-by-step -step process, helping you overcome stage fright, craft compelling messages, and deliver impactful presentations. When I took the Dale Carnegie School of Public Speaking and Human Relations, it changed my life and I will be able to help you do the same. My career in journalism and training and development was built on having the skills to be able to communicate to a team or thousands. I hold nothing back. I will give you all my trade secrets and how you can thrive and crush it. Imagine walking into a boardroom and captivating your audience with your powerful presence. Picture yourself confidently leading meetings, delivering persuasive pitches, and commanding attention in every interaction. With a public speaking mastery course, you'll be equipped with the skills to excel in any professional situation. If you're ready to take the step and supercharge your career, enroll in the Public Speaking Mastery course today. All the information and the cost is in the show notes. Don't let fear hold you back. Unlock your potential, elevate your career, and become a master of public speaking. Go to the show notes to register today to secure your spot in the next session of Public Speaking Mastery course. Public Speaking Mastery course, empowering professionals, transforming careers, Act now and make a lasting impression in every opportunity that comes your way. You will be glad you did and you will thrive for the rest of your life. We now return you to Latinos Who Thrive with special guests Miguel Lopez and Seca Lindo. How do you think going through all that impacted you as you moved forward being a business owner uh, and then at some point I want to include the story of Sophie. Yeah, so I so know you affectionately referred to as your duchess. My duchess, yes. Yeah. Uh, so so I think for me it it definitely created a sense of humbleness to me because I know the things that I went through and I would never want somebody else to feel that way that um, they're being judged or that they're being looked at as less of a person or any of that. Um, I mean, I got to see, you know, my mother, she, she was in the same situation, you know, and, and for her, maybe it was even worse because she was older. And so some of the jobs that she had to pick up were jobs that, you know, not very many people want to do. She, she used to clean apartments. She used to clean uh, different homes. And so whenever I see somebody that's in that profession, I think of my mother. Whenever I see a bus boy at a restaurant, I think that was me, you know? And so to me, I think it, it, it really helps to keep me grounded in knowing that where, where I came from and that there's other people that are in that position. Um, and I think it also helps in really bringing compassion and understanding as well, because, you know, as we progress in, in the business world, we, we go from people that are doing things to leaders and leading people and leading teams and leading different personalities. And part of that is understanding personalities and understanding people's motivations and understanding people's backgrounds. And so um, I'm, I'm definitely not one to judge. Um, and I think uh, really it, it, it comes from that, you know, just uh, being very, very humble because I know how hard I worked and how easily it could have been taken away. And I know that there's other people that could be in very similar situations. Um, as far as, as, far as my, my Dutch is here. So she's actually from um, England. Um, she got her citizenship uh, a couple of years ago. And so- um, she married you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And so so now, you know, I'm um, I still have DACA status. We, we got married a year ago. And so now we're, we're filing everything for citizenship and all that. Um, uh, had that not happened, you know, for DACA, you can continue renewing as long. They're not taking any new applicants. But as long as you had it, you can continue renewing. And then, you know, until until they either find a, a pathway for citizenship or you know, you get you get lucky like me, and you get to you get to marry somebody. Nice. Yeah. So your shops, you got two of them. Uh, what, 30, 40 barbers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, we started off with three barbers. Um, we started off very, I mean, bare bones. Um, Julio, I don't know if you had came to the, to the barbershop when we first opened it up, but we didn't have anything on the walls. It was literally three chairs. We had four TVs, didn't have a reception desk. I mean, I'm talking about bare bones. And it was, it was kind of cool in a way because we had to make it an atmosphere that people wanted to come to because there really wasn't much there, you know? Um, we ended up getting in in a really good location, the original one we opened it up, uh, towards Magnolia off of 1488. This was uh, almost eight, nine years ago now uh, since we opened it up. And it was just a, a really good area that uh, needed, needed a barbershop. And so we were able to grow it out from three chairs. We, grow, we grew it to 12 chairs within two years. And then that's when we opened up the, the second location. So uh, recently we just started an apprentice program so that we can be mentors and, and help train people in, in this industry. You know, uh, if it wasn't for the barbering industry, I, I wouldn't be here, you know? And so I know that there's, um, when I was coming up, there wasn't any mentorship. There wasn't anybody that I could look up to and say, hey, show me how to do this. So a lot of it was really trial and error, making mistakes messing some haircuts up, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's, that, was, that was really how I learned. So um, I feel like if, if I'm in a position now to where I can be a mentor to somebody and help bridge the gap and help them be successful much faster than they would be by themselves, then it's a win-win for everybody. And so, yeah, so we're uh, almost 40 barbers uh, deep now between both locations. So it, was it during COVID that y'all went to coffee school? Yes, yeah. So the, the, the way the coffee got involved um, coffee's been something that I've been passionate about as well uh, since I can remember. I love coffee. It's something that Sophie and I share. Literally, first thing that we do in the morning is we share a cup of coffee, and that's that's our bonding time. And we noticed through the years that talking to clients from the barbershop, um, they would either bring in a cup of coffee or they would ask, hey, where, where can I go get some coffee? And then past that, our barbers all drank coffee. So there were times where we would send a receptionist to do a coffee run. She'd bring back 20 coffees, right? And so we, we thought like, man, maybe there's, maybe there's something here, you know? And so during COVID, you know, when everything was, was shut down, once everything kind of got back up, we found a coffee school in Fort Worth, which we thought was crazy. Like, why, why is there a coffee school in Fort Worth of all places? But what they do is they help coffee shops kind of launch. They teach you all the way from the selection of coffee from green coffee to roasting to getting it to the to the coffee shop to the business side of things. That school has helped launch hundreds of different coffee shops. So they have a lot of field data that shows you, you know, what's how do you pick a good location? What should your cost of goods be? All these different things that we were able to get that we would have to kind of figure out on our own. And so um, we went there and we came back and we're like, we, we have to do this. We have to, we have to add a coffee shop, whether it's inside the, the barbershop or next to it. Like we think that it's something that's gonna be able to complement what, what we're doing now. And even more so than that, the community building piece of it. It's, I mean, that's what coffee does, right? It brings people together, it helps build a community. It's, it was the same thing that we were doing in the barbershop. Yeah, we're, we're cutting people's hair, but we're really just building a community and we're getting people together. And, uh, and then just the way that things line out, uh, you know, it's crazy how things just happen at, at the time that they're supposed to happen. Uh, right after COVID, we had outgrown our second location. We had 12 chairs. The last chair was right in front of the restroom. And so we knew like, all right, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. And there was a space that became available. We had built a pretty good relationship with the landlord. And they said, hey, do you, are you guys interested in taking this over? And originally we said, well, it was about three times the size of the one we used to have. We're like, I don't know if we need all that for a barbershop. I mean, that's gonna be like 50 chairs, you know? And so we started kind of talking with the landlord and he said, look, if you guys find a way to make this work, like we'll give you guys a really good deal. We'll help you guys out. And so uh, Sophie and I were like, I think this is it. This is the chance. Like we, we have to put a coffee shop in here with the extra room. And so, uh, so we did that and it's, it's grown way more than what we originally anticipated. Um, being that we went to the coffee school and we got to see kind of how to project sales, the economics, the financial part of it, we were lucky in that we already had an audience in the barbershop. So we would, we could project, Hey, if we only get 1% of the traffic that's coming in the barbershop, if we get 1% to go in the coffee shop, what does that look like dollar wise? And does it make sense? And so I feel like we were lucky in that because had we wanted, had we just wanted to open up just a, a entity on its own you don't really have an audience to project off of, right? So there's, there's some guesses that have to be made from there. And so, um, you know, everything happens in due time and 
we open it up and it's, it's been great. We're going on uh, a year and a half now since we opened it up. Uh, we're growing, we're expanding now. Um, we're gonna be adding uh, some cocktails uh, to, the, to the coffee side as well. Uh, we're getting our liquor license, we're expanding it. It's gonna be about uh, two and a half times the size that, that it is now. And just another opportunity, the space next door became available. And uh, we, we were out of room, talked to the landlord and they were able to, to work with us on, on, on doing the expansion. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely, we, we feel very lucky to, to be where we're at. So a cocktail before you get a haircut? Yeah, so, so, so funny enough, so, so we've, we've been offering free beer. Yeah, we, we've been uh, offering beer with, uh, with our, our haircut services. And so with this, we, we'd just be able to kind of expand on that, on that as well. But uh, what you see in, in coffee is that the majority of your coffee sales drop after one o'clock. You still get some, some traffic in there in the afternoon. But uh, doing the, the cocktails, you're able to kind of fill the, the afternoon up a little bit. Because, I mean, you still have the space there, you know. And so it's just another, really another, another way to, uh, to be able to, to keep the place busy. And then just something else that we can offer some of our, some of our customers on the, on the barbershop side as well. Something I want to close on before we do some Q&A, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. uh, you do an amazing job giving back to the community. Can you touch on why that's so important to you? Yeah, yeah. So for for me, growing up, I, I never knew anybody that was that that did that. At least that was accessible. Like you would always hear about, oh, this person's a philanthropist and they're giving money to this or they're doing this for the community. But I never knew anybody that was accessible. That if I had a question or if I wanted to meet them, I could I could go and meet them. And I'm a strong believer that if you're given a platform where you can make an impact or, or be of influence to somebody, then it's, it's your duty to do so, to do something positive with that. And so to me, I want people to see, and not just me, like I'll take some of the guys with me from the, from the barbershop, Sophie comes with me. Um, I want people to see that there's, there's younger people here that care about what's going on in the community and not stuff that's happening anywhere else in the world, not that there's no need anywhere else in the world, but here locally in, in, in our community, in Montgomery County, there's a lot of people that are in need here locally that don't know what's going on, you know? And so for me, you know, we're in a position to where we can do it and not just monetarily. We have, like I mentioned, almost 40 barbers. That's people that can donate their time. Um, there's times we go out, um, there's a market in downtown Conroe. It's um, the first Friday of every month. We'll set up, we have a mobile trailer. We'll set up and we'll do free haircuts out there once a month. And we get a ton of people that come by. Um, we'll do charity uh, collaborations where we'll take the trailer out and we'll go do free haircuts at churches, at different camps. Um, you know, I feel like if you're blessed with a talent, if you're blessed with, with something that you can give back, um, then it's, you know, you're giving it for a reason. And for us, it's being able to, to cut hair. You know, and I feel that's where we can make the, the most impact for us is being able to give somebody the confidence of, that, you know, like I was mentioning, I love getting a haircut. I love how it makes me feel. We can gift that to people and, and give back that way. But, um, and I think, you know, just as, as, as Hispanics, as minorities, you know, I think um, it's something that we, we can definitely see more of, uh, people getting out there in the community and, and being able to give back. Speaking of talents, you're quite the dancer. <laughs> so I reached out to Zach, like, hey, there's an event you probably should get involved in. I didn't tell him much on purpose because he would have said no. And uh, you reached out to uh, Roxanne with the YMCA, and you got involved with Dance for a Cause. You raised over ten thousand. We we did we did, and and I was really it, yeah. So we, what we did was we donated a dollar off of every haircut for two months, and um, I, I wasn't sure how many people were going to get behind it. I figured okay, if it's just us, then then cool. Uh, because w when you sign up for that for that event, they give you a minimum that they want you to try to raise. And so I said okay, if we do this, we'll, we'll be able to get close to that minimum. But we got a lot of support from people coming in and getting haircuts and some people that didn't even really care about the, the dancing there. Hey, you guys are you guys are giving back like I'm, I want to be a part of it. And yeah, we ended up raising um, I want to say it was close to twenty thousand dollars that that we raised for the local Y here in Montgomery County uh, that I didn't know prior to this. But I'm glad that you connected me with them. The Y does a lot more than just summer camps. And so we were able to help out a ton of people with that and really kind of lead the way in getting other people involved with different charities and, and being able to give back. That was awesome. Yeah. So I appreciate that. He didn't tell me he was going to be one of the judges, though, on the thing. <laughs> he said, hey, I want you to join this thing. But he didn't tell me I'm going to be judging you. <laughs> uh, you want to take some questions? Yeah. 
Uh, open for questions. So I know you talked about your friend group kind of growing up. Um, from friend group growing up, going to college, now being a professional, community kind of leaders, how have your friend group supported you? And then what have been some of the challenges that maybe as you elevated, noticing those, uh, just kind of how that might have changed? Yeah, so I've, I've got a, a couple of friends that were in, in a similar situation with me that were immigrants, that were, uh, some of them were, were DACA, others ended up getting citizenship, citizenship other ways. Uh, but they were kind of like me, where they were just trying to prove their worth in, in, in society just in case something happened and you had to say, hey, but, but I'm a good person, you know? And so um, a couple of them have uh, gone to school, they're engineers now, a couple of them are, are business owners. Um, I would say as far as my, my circle of friends has definitely gotten smaller. Um, I think part of it is really just from a time, from a, a, a time thing. I don't, I don't really go out much um, anymore. Um, most of the going out is really revolves around business, networking type, type things. Um, I, I, I would say that even though the circle has gotten smaller, the quality and the value of the circle has definitely increased. Yeah. Well, the idea of you know, building community, you know, gotta be tough though, right? In a highly mobile society and we're all so fractured and living in different places. So um, I'm curious how, how you feel like you're able to do that. Are you, are you seeing that happen at your- uh, Yeah, so, so, so I think for us, it's really, it, it comes down to the relationship. It comes down to when you can do the one-on-one -on -one and, and like, like he was saying, like he was, he was offering to grab coffee and just get to know each other. No selling, no, no none of that. Just let's get to know each other. And so I think, I think that's really what it, what it boils down to is really trying to build a relationship and not expect anything in return and just getting to know people. So um, I, I don't cut hair much anymore, but when I do, I mean, I'll have somebody sit in the chair and it's like, yeah, I'm cutting their hair, but they're just friends at this point. They're not even clients. Like it's just, it's become such a, a close relationship um, that, I, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, when people walk in, oh, hey, man, congrats, congrats on, the, on the new baby. Or um, I think social media has helped too because you're able to kind of keep up with people a lot easier now than you would before. So even you go six months, a year without seeing somebody, they come in the barbershop, you, you kind of know what's been going on with them and you pick up right, right where you stopped. And so I think, I think it really comes, comes to that, just getting people together um, in a place where they can feel comfortable, they can kind of, uh, you know, kick their shoes off a little bit and just, and just relax and have normal conversations, you know? And I think um, uh, on the barbershop side, that's, that's when we hire people, we try to hire people that are personable, that have a passion for what they do, but just have a passion for people as well. And um, on the coffee shop side too, you know, just bringing people together. But I think it, it really comes down to that, is that you have to really focus on the relationship on the very, very um, like microscopic level, more so than just like, hey, let's all come here. You, you know what I mean? Uh, does that answer your question there? Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious as whether you feel like it are, it's as easy to do here as it might have been growing up in that neighborhood in Chicago where, you know, there's a community there. Yeah, yeah. Tougher, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so comparing to when I grew up in, in Chicago, you would, you would walk a lot of places or you would take public transportation. That was just kind of how it was set up over there. And there was a barbershop literally on, on every corner. So it's almost like every individual neighborhood had their own local barbershop and that's where everybody would go. And so I, I feel like that's kind of what we're trying to build here, even though there's plenty of room for more barbershops. I mean, just where we're at on 1488, you could probably put another 10 barbershops over there and, it, and it'd be fine because there's so many people living there. So I think that even though there's not that many barbershops in the area, there's just as many people living in this area as in the big cities, right? And it's only growing. And so I think it may be even easier getting a community there because there's, there's not one there for people to congregate at, if, if, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. as opposed to in Chicago. I mean, there's barbershops everywhere here. There's a the potential to put barbershops, I mean, a, a lot of different, not just barbershops, but a lot of different businesses, service-based businesses that I think um, we're in a really good spot here, especially in Montgomery County with, with all the growth that's projected. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So we've been friends for a few years. Um, the DACA experience, there was a runner from Guatemala. He came to the U.S. when he was one. Okay, his Spanish really lousy. 
Um, but he just, you know, and he was excelling. He lives in Los Angeles. And he was fast enough to make it to the Olympics, and he had to request permission to leave the country and come back legally. So he's ready to go to Tokyo. He's and a wicked fast, 5K, and he doesn't know, and he doesn't know. And then, what, three days? Three days, three before, days. before getting on the plane, yes, you can go. You can leave the country and come back. So he went to the Olympics. He finally. He was in the top 10 fastest runners in the 5K at the Olympics representing mm -hmm. Guatemala, like waving the flag and all that stuff. And he's, um, there's a whole video of him talking about the DreamWorks. So I just thought that was super interesting. How, you know, you were cutting it close to two days as well. Yeah. The pressure. Yeah, and that's the thing that some, some, some people's requests do get granted to, to leave the country, others don't. And so that was something that I, not, I didn't even attempt. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not risking it, yeah. Chicago yeah. here. Ah, okay. That's nice, that's nice to see. Um, you said you started very bare bones. Can you talk a little bit about funding and how you were able to grow so much? Yeah, yeah. So so if, if I could go back and do things differently, I, I definitely would. So when we first started, I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to try to get a loan because I knew that there was going to be some kind of issue with my status or any of that. And so I used all my money. Um, I, think, I think business coaches tell you, don't do that use somebody else's money, right? So when we first started, part of why it was bare bones is because I was using my own money. And so I was trying to just be as scrappy as I possibly could. Now, if I could do it again, I think I would have maybe secured a loan um, and more so to give me less stress because I pretty much spent everything I had on the build out, on the chairs, on all of that. So when it came time to pay bills, I'm having to take out of what I'm making to pay those bills so that I can barely pay my bills personally, right? And so luckily we were able to get some traction going early on to where we're making, we're making some money to where I could, I could, you know, be a little bit more comfortable. But I'd say probably the first, the first year was stressful because it was, it, it was cutting it close every single time, right? Because I was either um, not making enough to, to pay my own bills uh, there's always things that, that happen in business that you're not prepared for. Um, and also, I undershot the budget for how much it was going to cost to open up. There were a lot of things I didn't think about, like you need a sign out front, right? And, and that's not cheap to put it up there. Um, uh, taxes, right? Um, insurance. I mean, uh, there were a lot of things that sound like, oh, well, you should have known that. But it's when, 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 you're, when you're trying to open something up and be scrappy, you're, you're just thinking, okay, how can I get this thing off the ground, right? Like, I'll worry about the rest later on. And so, um, yeah, so, so, so that's really why it was bare bones, just because I didn't, I didn't have enough to, to really do any, any, any more. And you also, you, you kind of, when you're in that situation, you don't want your staff knowing like, hey, it's tough right now, right? And so you have to act like, hey, we're crushing it, you know? But deep down inside, you're like, how, how are we, how are we gonna make the rent? You know, or, or are they gonna say, hey, like I can only give you 10 days, like it's been 12, you know, what are you gonna, you, you know what I mean? And so I think um, if there was any advice that I could give is, you know, try to secure, you know, enough funding so that you not just cover your, uh, your build out and all that, but also you cover some, some operating expenses for at least a couple of months. So. If, if nothing else, it saves you peace, peace of mind um, and the stress of, of having to do all that. Yeah. One more question, I gotta wrap it up. Me? Yeah, sure. Um, do you see any solution to the integration issue? And do, do you have an idea for how that could be resolved? And what do you see as your role in pushing that along? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, it's a sensitive subject and I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are here in the country that are doing really good things for society, really good things for the community. And so I think at, at the least, I think something should be considered um, for them. I, I don't, I, I'm not gonna say I have the answer for it, but I do think that it's, it's an area that should be considered because there's a lot of really good people that can make, make a really powerful impact um, in our country that are already making a, a powerful impact in our country. And so I, I definitely think um, there should be a, a solution. And, you know, we'll see in the future if, if something like that comes up. Yeah. 
speaks like a politician. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to thank Zach very much oh, thank for you. joining us. Bud. Thank you. Zach, that was quite an inspirational story that, that I heard today. Tell us, how much money did you have to start out in your barbershop business? Yeah, so I had $12,000 is, is what I started off with. And we had to do uh, chairs, we had to do painting, flooring. And so, I mean, you can quickly do the math. I mean, that's, that's not enough to cover everything. 2020 hindsight, what do you think you really needed to start with? Um, I think uh, a lot more than that. I think I needed to start with probably forty-five to 50000 Okay. Not just to cover build-out, not just to cover the physical things, but operating expenses, just to give a cushion. Um, there's different things that pop up, you know, kind of a, an emergency fund that you need to have. So I think uh, forty-five to fifty would have would have definitely been more of a cushion for me. Now, that would have stopped you. You would have never started if in your mind you knew that you needed 45 to 50, which is going to be the same story for a lot of the listeners. Mm -hmm. The takeaway that I got from your story is it doesn't matter where you start, just start. Exactly. And that's if, if I could go back, I would have started, I would have gone and branched off on my own a long time ago because a lot of the fear was the what ifs, the unknown. But knowing now what I know after being in business for eight years is that honestly, if you want something bad enough, you're gonna figure out a way to do it and nothing's gonna stop you. And if you set it in your mind that there's no plan B, there's no, like I'm, I'm making this jump and, and I'm not looking back, you're gonna find a way to make things happen. You're burning this ship. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But you need that, you need that in a way to force you to think outside the box because otherwise you're gonna be constrained by all the fear, all the what ifs, all the uncertainty. But if you tell yourself, well, this is it. Like, I'm, I, there's no turning back at this point. You're, you have no choice but to figure it out. Obviously, you know a lot of Latinos that are your demo mm -hmm. that they look at you as an example, but yet they don't take the action. What do you think uh, stops them? I think fear of having, it, when you look at somebody and what they've done, they're the ones taking the risk. They're the ones that have skin in the game. When it turns to you, it turns to you being the one that has to take the risk. And so I think, I think that's, that's really the number one deterrent is the fear of having to do something. Even though somebody could tell you, hey, you're gonna do it, or you're gonna be successful. It's convincing yourself that taking that risk is gonna be worth it. You have grown exponentially without, did you have a business plan starting out? No, mm -hmm. no. Now you come from the financial background. Mm -hmm. uh, you knew how to do a business plan. Why didn't you start out with a business plan? So had I gone back, I would have definitely, that, that's one of the things I would have definitely started with. But I felt like I was starting with such little money and I had to be scrappy that I had to focus my attention on really making things happen rather than putting things on paper and figuring out what I'm gonna do with each individual piece of the business. So I was so focused on, okay, I've, got, I've just gotta put something together, it's gotta be quick. And that's why I skipped that step. Now, looking back, yeah, I would've, I would've definitely, that would've definitely helped out. To what do you attribute your instant success? Um, that, Immigrant mentality of, of just knowing that, you know, we, we've got a, uh, I'm trying to make something of myself and trying to leave a legacy. And I, I want to do something meaningful. And once you set the mind to it, there's no turning back. And so I think, I think it's that. Where do you envision your business in five years? So I, I compare it a lot to uh, brands like Paul Mitchell, Aveda, these big household names that are normally attributed to salons. What I want Galindos to be is to that level, but to highlight the barbers and the people that go to the barbershop and the demographic that goes to the barbershop, which, I mean, honestly, is a lot of minorities that just go to places like that. And so uh, our brand is going to represent the people that visit the barbershop. So a lot of it, the minorities and, and us. 
And so uh, that's that's the, that's where I'm seeing Galindo's in five years on on that stage, being a household name. Talk about your community building repertoire because that is key that a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, I think you have to be tied into your community because at the end of the day, pe people aren't going to buy what you're selling. They they want to know your why and they want to know that you're genuine. And for us, we want to have a positive impact in our community. And we know that when you go into business, you can't just look at the, the dollars. There, there has to be a higher purpose for what you're doing. And so for us, we want to leave this community in a, in a better shape than it was when we first came here. And so it's vital for us to get in touch with our community, get to know our community, because then in turn, we know what to offer them. We know how to make what we do even better for them to create more value. And so um, I love getting out of the community. We get to meet people that we may have never met otherwise, people that may have never walked in the barbershop or come to any of our businesses, but we get to build that relationship with them. And whether they come and visit us to the barbershop or not, they, they get a glimpse of what we do, who we are. And I think that is, uh, you know, not just one of the most powerful ways to market, but one of the, the best ways to build relationships. And ultimately, you know, we're in the people business. You know, if you're in the service-based business, yeah, yeah, you're selling services, but really you're, you're, you're selling relationships. So you're, you're working with people. And so it's vital for you to know the people that are in your community. This question is for historic value. How old are you? Uh, I'll be 35 in August. I know where you're going business-wise, your trajectory. How much buildings are you currently doing? How much, I'm sorry? Billing, billings. Income. Oh, income. Billing. So, uh, so uh, we, uh, we just hit 2.5 million in revenue last year. We're projecting to closer to 3 million uh, this year. And uh, we've been growing at least 15 to 20% every year. And we're looking at making big jumps over the next couple of years. Uh, and opening up different locations, spreading our, our wings a little bit more. Uh, but right now we're sitting at, uh, I'm projected to 3 million annually at revenue. That, that is phenomenal. Where other salons, barbershops are struggling, you're just crushing it. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, we're blessed. We have a really good team that, that get behind the vision. Uh, we have really good leadership uh, structure within our company. And really, we, we just have really good clients and customers and, and friends. We're in a really good community. And so a mix of all that is really, really what, what, what's gotten us to where we're at. Lots of success. I will be keeping your trajectory <laughs> and remind you of today's interview. I appreciate that. Man. That was you. nice meeting you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.